Uh, we started the book of Samuel at the beginning of this year, but we took about uh, 12 weeks off for when we did the summer series over the summer. And so the book of 1 Samuel has kind of introduced us to, if you weren't familiar with it or reminded you of, four main characters that were in this book that we got to know, or at least I got to know as I was studying um, about them and, and just kind of getting to know them. I don't know if you, if I would say in an intimate way, but I got, I got to know their characters just by studying these guys. And, and my heart is that when we go through a book that, that we would get to know the people that are involved in it. And it's a good thing for, you know, for you when you read the word, wherever you're at, to find out who's, who's in it and why. And, and the four characters that we came across that are in this book are Eli, Samuel, Saul, and David. The interesting thing about this book, um, even though we were in it for a year, this book spans from beginning to end about 90 to 95 years. And it just doesn't seem that way when we're kind of just studying and going through it. But when you get the timeline, um, there's, it's almost a hundred year timeline in this book that we've covered Beginning with Eli, when, when we first got into the book, Eli was already like the main character. I mean, um, he was already the priest there in, uh, in uh, Shiloh area. That's where they, we, they would go to worship. And so Eli was already a priest. He was already older because he had older sons that were also priests. We got to know them. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly is what we get to see in, in the Word of God. And, and Eli, he wasn't the greatest father. He had a lot on his shoulders, being the priest of Israel. The fact that, that, that God hadn't really spoken to Israel in hundreds of years, and here he is the one that represents God, and God's not saying anything. He hasn't been saying anything for a long time. And, and when we got to know Eli and his sons, we found out that his sons were super corrupt. They were taking advantage of, of, of the priesthood in so many different areas, and we saw that. And we saw that, that Eli, you know, the God, uh, that, that he, God did send a man of God to kind of tell him that his sons would die, and then he ends up dying and all that. It, it was just a horrible scene. But for hundreds of years, the Lord hadn't truly spoken to the children of Israel. And in that time, in the beginning of the book, we see Hannah, we see her husband, Elkanah, and, and, and things like that. And she is barren and she's praying. And, and Eli goes and accuses her of being drunk in the temple or, and stuff like that. And she is just so hurting because she wants a child. And Elkanah's other wife has all these kids that she's just popping them out. Boom, boom, boom. And she has none, and, and this woman is just making her life miserable. And so God finally answers her prayer, and Samuel is born, this little child. And she had dedicated to the Lord this male child that if she was to have him, she would give him back to him. And so he is born. And she says that once he is weaned, that she would lend him to the Lord or give him to the Lord. 
And we see that she comes and she brings her son to Eli and leaves them there so that he can be brought up in the temple. And again, knowing the history of Eli, <laughs> knowing that he wasn't the greatest father, she was trusting that the Lord was going to be above that and take care of her son anyways. And sure enough, the Lord just just began to, to show up. And at the age of 12, the Lord speaks. And it's interesting because he thought it was Eli calling him. And finally, Eli realized, this is the Lord. I haven't been calling you. And so next time you hear this voice, answer the Lord. Here I am. You know, your servant is listening. And sure enough, the Lord begins to speak to him. And Samuel, he becomes the priest eventually. But he is also used as a prophet as well. And when the people wanted to be just like other, all the other nations, the Lord said, listen to their voice. And it hurt Samuel because here Samuel is listening from the Lord, hearing from the Lord. The Lord's finally speaking to the nation of Israel and Israel saying, we want a king. We'd rather have a king. And so Samuel listens to their voice and he's in, engaged in and involved in the choosing of Saul. And that's our other character. The people wanted a king and God gave them what they wanted. And that's a dangerous place to be. I think oftentimes we want certain things in our life, man, and we're clamoring to the Lord about it. And finally the Lord says, is that what you want? I'll give it to you. And it's not the good thing. It's not what they expected. Samuel brings about what they wanted and the Lord gave them Saul. And outwardly, oh my goodness, this guy had everything going for him. He was tall, dark, and handsome, basically. Taller than everybody, man. I think I used the term papi chulo back then, man. He, he, he had it all. He had it going on. He's the kind of guy that you want on the coin of your nation, man. It's like, that's our king. He had everything outwardly, but inwardly he was empty. This man lacked a lot of character, a lot of good qualities. He had a lot of character flaws as we kind of got to know Saul somewhat. You know, he started off kind of humble, kind of standoffish, but the guy couldn't hide because the Bible tells us, as we were looking, that he was head and shoulders over everybody. So he, he was hard to miss. And being good looking, easy on the eyes, it's like everybody is like, woo, there's Saul. Women were clamoring for him. Guys were jealous of him. But he, had, he was empty inside. He really did not have a relationship with the Lord. Now, because of his disobedience, after he became king, the Lord tore the kingdom away from him, and it says that he gave it to somebody else, or he was going to give it to another. And that is when David comes on the scene. And David is a young man when he comes on the scene. He's probably anywhere from 15 to 18 years old, if that, somewhere around there. He's a young man. And all of a sudden, God begins to use this young man. He's, had, he's, he's anointed him, and Samuel was involved in that. And for, the, for most of the second part of the book, that we've been covering has to do with Saul and David. 
and the jealousy that was going on between Saul or Saul for David. And David, he, he, he just kind of stayed above the fray. David is a good example for us of, of somebody who is patiently waiting. Someone, someone who has been promised and spoken to by the Lord, but the promise hasn't ful- been fulfilled yet. He's a good example for us. And Saul is also an example for us. Saul had a tendency of not being humble. (laughs) And we see all the trouble that he got himself in. And so the second part of this book has to do with battles. Not only from without, the enemies from without, but a lot of the battles from within. And that's what we struggle with sometimes in our lives. I mean, it's bad enough that the world comes after us. And we always have to go out and fight the world. But when those battles hit close to home, you know, it just kind of weighs on you. And, and we see that in David. First Samuel shows us what happens when people get what they want. They wanted to go from being ruled under a theocracy, being ruled by God, and they wanted a monarchy to be ruled by a king because they wanted to be just like the other nations. But here's the thing about Israel. No matter what they wanted, no matter how far they got, God would never, ever take his eyes off of Israel. And even though they wanted to be just like every, nation, every other nation, they wanted to be ruled by a king, God still demanded obedience from the nation of Israel and from the king and from the people. All the way around, he wanted obedience. So God was still going to require of them obedience. And so let's read the whole chapter, chapter 31, as we finish this book off. I'm going to try to get done just a little earlier, way early, because we're going to have some communion tonight. And just kind of have some worship and communion as well. So... Verse 30, or chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not. For he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley... And those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook 
the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim that proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of, ben, of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabez-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the body of his sons from the wall of Bethshen. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. It's a sad kind of chapter here as we finish this book off. But it's interesting because here this battle, this great and epic battle, was being gathered together in the northern part of of Israel, up in the valley of Jezreel, and, and you have Mount Gilboa off to the west, or to the east, and, and, and on the other side of those mountains would be the Sea of Galilee in that area, but they're in that valley, and, and off to the west would be the Valley of Megiddo area. So they're fighting in that area, and so people could see what's going on, and Israel had the higher ground, and the Philistines had the lower ground. And so you would think they had this advantage from being on the high ground, but they had to engage them at some point, and the Philistines were good with, with their chariots and stuff, so they preferred the, 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 the flat ground. And so this epic battle is now coming to fruition here. And it's basically summed up in this, this one verse, <laughs> in the first verse. It's, it's basically summed up that they came together to fight against Israel, and Israel fled. Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain in Mount Gilboa. What a, what a sad thing, man. Because Israel, Israel is the army of God and they're falling slain. The Philistines had pulled out all the stops here. They had gathered all together as we saw in our last study. At least the five princes had gotten together and so they had massive amount of people, thousands upon thousands of men ready, ready to go out and fight. And so it seems like Israel was outmanned. They were outgunned or outarrowed, you know. And I would say that they were also outmotivated as well. I think, I think by this time, the nation of Israel, the army of Israel... Their, their morale was not at their height. I think their morale was down. Maybe because they've seen what's been happening for the last several years. One of their favorite warriors, one of their favorite captains is in exile. 
David is on the run, basically. And he has 600 men. And I'm sure a lot of the men that are still fighting with Saul are probably thinking, I wish I was on that side over there, man. I wish I was fighting with them because we like them. Because Saul, man, he had this temper about him. He was up and down, man. The guy was kind of schizophrenic, you know. He probably had some polar going on, man. He, he was just up and down, in and out. And he was just battling life. And, and, and I think they understood that they were basically a nation that was divided. Maybe not 50-50 divided, but a small percentage of them because David and his mighty men the small band of men they, they seem to have all the firepower man and I think when, when he got exiled when he finally left it's just kind of like the wind was out of their sails somewhat and so they would go fight they would go do what they had to do but in this fight here I think they knew man it's not going to look good the interesting thing is, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Saul, that he, he went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord wouldn't answer him, so he went to a medium to go find out, you know, from Samuel, hey, man, how is this going to turn out? And Samuel basically told him, hey, bro, guess what, man, you're going to be with us tomorrow, so you're going to die in this battle. So Saul is going out to this battle, knowing that he's not coming home. He's going out, so I can imagine that he is not... He, he is not gung-ho about this whole battle. He knows that he's going to die and that his sons are going to die with him. And so the bigger picture of all this thing here was the fact that God was not answering Saul anymore. God was not fighting for them. God was not going before them anymore. And it was directly because of Saul's disobedience to God that now his time was up. Disobedience distanced you from the Lord. It really, really does. You know, I, I think Saul, and, and I'll touch on it as, at the end here, but, but Saul thought that, that partial obedience was good enough. And I think oftentimes we, we can make ourselves feel or sense that we're being obedient. No, not totally, but we're being obedient. We're doing what we want to be doing not exactly what the Lord has called us to be doing. And there was so much that I feel like the Lord wanted to do in Saul's life. But his time was up and this chapter was about to close in Israel's history. And the bad thing was that it wasn't just Saul that pays for his disobedience. The whole nation the whole nation was dragged down because of Saul's disobedience. And I feel like that's why the morale of this army was, not just, was just not at, at, at its full potential. Having, having to, to, to fight with or, or, or be commanded by a commander-in-chief who's truly not in it, it's disheartening. And because of his disobedience, everybody would pay for it. And so it says from verse 2 to verse 6 that the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed three of the four sons of, of Saul. It says that they followed hard after Saul. And I thought, what if? 
this is the question that popped up and I have to write it down. What if Saul would have followed hard after the Lord? What, what, what would have happened to this man if he would have followed hard after him? Because when you, when you see or hear that in this text, that these guys, they were, they were lasered on, let's get Saul. They were following hard. I mean, nothing was going to divert them, man. It was almost like, yeah, let's, let's fight these little skirmishers here, but the main prize is right up there. And so nothing was going to deter these archers from going after the main prize. And I have to think that even for me and for us, it's like, what will happen if we are that lasered, focused, following hard after Jesus? What would have happened with Saul? I, I, I believe he could have been one of the greatest kings of Israel. Oh, it's quite possible that he still died in battle. But I, I, I truly believe that the nation would have been in a different place if he would have been obedient. Even if he, if he would have had to die the way he died, however it was going to happen, um, I think everything would have been different. He would have been looked at in a different light by us as well. If there was some humility in his life, knowing, understanding that he was from the tribe of Benjamin and not from the tribe of Judah, that his dynasty would not continue. But that he would be what man wanted, but he would be the best and then hand it off to someone who, who would have a dynasty like David. He would have went down as one of the greatest kings. In, in these battles, when, when you look at some of the battles in, in the Old Testament, the main focus was going after the head, going after the king, going after the commander, whoever was in charge. If you could cut the head, the, the, then you, you, the, the battle was basically won because everybody would be so disheartened that their leader is now dead. <laughs> and so they fought hard or they followed hard after him and they succeeded. They had killed three of his four sons. Ishbosheth, for some reason, was not in this battle. It's quite possible he could have been and he escaped. But more than likely, he wasn't in this battle. And we'll see him in the next book as we get into that one. But it says that the battle became fierce against Saul. And I would say that Saul was on the run. He wasn't fight going towards the battle. He was running against the battle. I, I, I think he was so disheartened by this whole thing. I, I, I think that, 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 that Samuel's you know, words were just floating around in his head. And he's going, at any moment, I'm going to die. And so I believe that when push came to shove, he was running away from the battle. And Saul is hit. And there is a fatal wound. Wound. And he knows it. And he asks his armor bearer to do him in. Now, an armor armor bearer is the right hand of the king. He is his right hand man. He he is a right hand man to the king or the commander. Whoever is out there, if you are an armor bearer, your job is to carry the extra weapons that he might need. And your job is to do all the dirty work for him. If he shoots someone... And, and, and the guy doesn't quite die, then you go over there and you finish him off. You either shoot him with an arrow, you hit him with a club, you do whatever you need to do to take care of that so your king will get the victory. 
And so he knows that his master is hurt. But see, his job is not to hurt his master. His, ma- his job is to make his master look good and to prop him up and do whatever it takes for his master. But he's not supposed to hurt his master. And so when Saul tells him, hey man, I've been struck and I'm going to die. I'd rather you kill me than those cats kill me. Because if they catch me, they're going to mutilate me and they're going to abuse me. And I'd rather be dead than them doing that to me while, I'm, while I still have life in me. And this armor bearer, he has so much integrity. <laughs> he says, I will have none of that. He cannot do that. Now I'm thinking, you're being ordered to do it. And, and, and he looks at his master and is like, I can't. I will fall on my sword before you, I, 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 I strike you. And so it shows that, that this man, this, this armor bearer man, he, he, he was loyal. He was honorable. And he would not do this to his king. And even though King Saul was not the best king, and even though he had many, many faults, this armor bearer could not turn on his master in any way. And I like that about this armor bearer. There's books that have been written about armor bearers, man, and what they're supposed to be doing. And this guy, man, again, we just look at this guy going right on. His job is to keep his master safe and alive, not to turn and kill him. And so when Saul realizes that his own armor bearer is not going to do that, he takes out his sword like, or he basically fell on it. I'm thinking of, you know, samurai stuff. You know, he probably just like put it down and just fell on it. When his armor bearer sees that, he says, I can't, I, I cannot leave this without my life being dead too. This, this brings up the issue of, of suicide because as I was looking at that, I'm thinking people are going to look at this like these guys committed suicide. And suicide is wrong. Guys, it is always wrong. Suicide is never right. Do people do it? Yeah. Is it the unpardonable sin? No, it's not. And we, and we can't tell people that, guys. I know so many people is like, well, if they commit suicide, they're going to hell. It's like, that and I know so many people do and we need to be careful with that because it's not the unpardonable sin as some would think but it is wrong and it is wrong every time now if you know the account of the first chapter of second Samuel you know that somebody claims to have killed Saul and we'll get that next week but this armor bearer saw his master dead. And to him, the only thing he could do was to do himself in. And so in verse 6, he says, so it says, so Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together on the same day. So everybody that was in that valley, for the most part, it says, died. The, the guys that could see the battle from other places Man, they hightailed it and they ran. Because verse 7 starts off that way. These guys, they, they, they knew they were outnumbered. And so they just decided to go. But it's interesting because even though Israel was oftentimes outnumbered, that never really stopped them. 
Why? Because they knew that God was always fighting their battles. But for some reason, they knew that this one was over. And God was not in, in it for them. He was allowing this to happen to this nation. I have to believe that they all knew that. That God was not on their, on their side this time. And that's a dangerous place to be. When you know that you are in sin or that your, your situation, you know, in this case, their, their, their king is in sin and they're having to pay the price. But when you put yourself in that situation that God's going, my hand's off. I can't bless what I've already condemned. Guys, it is a dangerous place to be. And we cannot put ourselves there and then think that God's okay with what we're doing. Because he will take his hand off. Even towards his people, he will take his hand off and let the consequences fall. And so we need to be careful. And, and the difference between Saul and David is that even though David, he went off and did his thing for a time, his, his heart was always towards God. And when he repented, God hurt him. And that's why God, David was always called the man after his own heart, God's own heart, because he knew what it meant to repent. And Saul didn't. And it hurt him de- uh, dearly, and it hurt the whole nation dearly. It says, so it happened the next day, after the battle, that the Philistines came and they stripped the slain. Meaning that they came to take anything of value from their enemies. And that's how many of these guys got paid. You know, they take stuff. They oh, they take stuff to their god and to their temple and to their king. But man, I could guarantee you, man, they're like, hey, I'm getting paid for this one. They're taking whatever they can and putting it in their own pockets as well. And for many of them, you know, going and, 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 and plucking through the, the dead people, to them, that was just whatever they could retrieve, man, whatever they could line their pockets with, whatever they could take that, that, that belonged to somebody else, that was their trophy. And the biggest trophy that any opposing army could ever get was the king of another nation or some high-ranking official. And in this case, it was Saul and his sons. And it says that they cut off his head and they stripped his armor in verse 9. And they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. They had gotten the ultimate trophy, the head of the king. Just like when, when David killed Goliath, man, he cuts his head off and he carries it around. It's like, this is my trophy. And I'm giving it to the king, you know. It's like, it just sounds kind of gruesome, right? Kind of gross, you know. Kind of like, man, I can't believe that people would actually do that. But you know what? That's been going on forever, guys. That, that, that's, that's how these battles go. When, when you're reading through the Old Testament, there's a lot of gnarly stuff that happens. Stuff that you're going, well, that's so radical. Why would they do that? It's like, because that's reality. That, that is the world that, 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 that we live in even today as we're seeing a lot of this happening more and more, the disgusting stuff that happens. Man, man is brutal, isn't, aren't they? <laughs> men are brutal. But it's always been like that. And then in verses 11 through 13, 
says, now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night, about 20, 15 to 20 miles from where they were at. And they took the body, body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shem, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Now, the inhabitants of Jabesh, Gilead, we've heard of these people before. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, this, they were rescued by Saul. This was Saul's like first battle that he would go out. And the Lord was with him and he delivered these guys. Now, if you remember the story, the, the Ammonites, um, you know, they, they, they wanted to come and fight against Jabesh uh, Gilead. And the men of Jabesh Gilead, they're going, well, we really don't want to fight. Just, just give us a covenant, make a, make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And the guy goes, okay, well, everybody pluck out your right eye. If I can pluck out everybody's right eye, then I'll go for the deal. And the interesting thing was that these men said, well, give us seven days to think about that. <laughs> You're kidding me. You have to think about that? But it's interesting because back then, they were just like willing to be their servants. Now, Jabez Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan River. And more than likely, they were from the tribe of Gad. And they were one of the tribes that wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan along with the tribe of Reuben and the half-tribe of, of Manasseh. And even though they were distant from the children of Israel because they didn't want to engage in, in a war towards the end of, of Judges there, you know, they were just kind of exiled or, or they, they, they really didn't have a lot to do with Israel anymore. But in chapter 11, 11 when Saul came to the rescue, these guys would be indebted for them forever. And it's interesting because verse 12 tells us that now they had some valiant men. So it's almost like, hey, when did you guys grow up, man? When did you guys realize, hey, man, we can't just be giving up. We need to fight. And so when this happens, the guys from Jabez Gilead, Jabez Gilead, they decided to go and, and, and risk their own lives. Because they would have to go into Beth Shem, Shen, and go take the bodies from, from the, the, the Philistines. So they went in the dead of night and they had to go at least 15 miles to go get it and then bring them back because they honored him. Now, it wasn't normal that the Jews would burn their dead. But when the bodies were so mutilated, maimed, and defaced oftentimes because they could not wash and, 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 and give them a proper burial like that and anoint them, they would, they would burn them. They wouldn't cremate them completely because that was against their common practices. But they would burn them at least to kind of get all the flesh off and then they would bury the bones and that's what they did with them. And they did it in an honorable way. Now, King Saul, as we close up here, King Saul was known for his disobedience. That's the way he goes down in history. 
God had chosen this man because this is what the people wanted. And he could have been a man that, that, that could have been a great king. But his pride would always get in the way. It didn't seem like he had an ounce of humility to his name. And we see that Jonathan, his son, was so humble. And yet he didn't learn that from his dad. But Saul goes down in history as being disobedient because he thought that partial obedience was good enough. That God was, was okay when we partially, when he partially obeyed. And I'm here to tell you guys, um, God is not. <laughs> He's not satisfied with that. He's not satisfied with our partial obedience. He, he, he's not happy when, when we know that we're in sin and we continue to be in sin and we're going, but you know who I am, Lord. Ah, you have to put up with me because you love me. It's like, no, he'll, he'll take his hand off. God cannot bless what he has condemned. And disobedience is an abomination to the Lord. And David, or, or Saul, became an abomination, basically, to the nation of Israel and to the God of Israel. Because he thought it was okay. This, this, this should be a great lesson for us as believers. That when we think that it is okay to be partially obedient, then we're wrong, guys. And we need to repent from that. We, we, we need to be able to come to the Lord. It's like, Lord, I need more of you because what is of me <laughs> continues to sin. And so, Lord, I need to draw closer to you because it seemed like Saul was never at peace with the spirit that God had anointed him with. He was always battling against that. And so when, when the spirit was taken off of, and lifted off of Saul, then Saul was okay. It, it just didn't mesh, you know? And partly it was because of him, not because of the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit wanted to do an awesome work inside King Saul. But Saul kept on fighting against it. And he just wasn't comfortable with that kind of spirit in his life. He would rather do it his way, the way he wanted to do it. And guys, unless we humble ourselves... Unless we come to a place of saying, all of you and none of me, Lord. You increase that, you know, that, that I might decrease. All those kinds of things is, is what God requires of us. Now, I do like the fact that at the end of Saul's life, and even in his death, in this last chapter, that Saul was honored. I do, man. I feel sorry for Saul. Because he was put, put into this position and he just had these, these demons that he fought against constantly. And even though he died a shameful death, basically, because of his disobedience, in one sense he was honored. He was honored by his, his armor bearer. His armor bearer wouldn't turn against him. Now we saw David do that throughout. Why he, he respected the position for sure, but I think he had a heart for Saul still. And even though his armor bearer, man, even though the armor bearer could have said, man, finally get rid of him. Boom, let me kill you. He wouldn't do that. And then to see these men at the, you know, of Jabez Gilead at the end, 
risk their own lives for a dead body just so they can give them a proper burial, a decent and honorable burial. They did all that for Saul, man. And I think it kind of shows us even the grace of God (laughs) in Saul's life here. That even though he disobeyed other people, they they respected the, 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 the position of the king. And I believe some of them, even though they didn't agree with Saul, man, he was their king. And so they honored him. You know, as, as we segue into communion here, I like the fact that in Philippians it tells us that Jesus, he was obedient. He knew what was coming down. He knew that when he left heaven, what was going to happen. He knew it. And he could have easily said, you know what, these people are not worth it. I know what they're going to do afterwards. <laughs> Not so much, I know what's going to happen to me. I know that these people, even though I start my church, they will be disobedient to me. And yet Jesus says, I will go and I will die for these people. Guys, what an awesome privilege we have. You know, when we're talking about Ephesians chapter 5, when we're talking about husband and wife, and I like that when Paul says, oh, you thought I was talking about husband and wife? No, I was talking about Christ and his bride, the church. And I often tell people, you know, the church is so disobedient. And all, all the church is asked to do is submit, just like a wife is asked to submit. And how many times are we disobedient? And Jesus, being the perfect husband, <laughs> continues to love and give and sanctify and watch and cherish and overlook all our faults and things like that when we come to him. Because that's who we serve. That's our Jesus. And so even though this chapter and this book kind of finishes on a downer, you know, we have a God who sent his son and was obedient to death for you and I. And I'm going to close in prayer right now and the worship team can come up. And we're going to pass out the bread and then we'll pass out the cup and and, and when we do, just hold on to it. And, and in that time, I'm going to ask somebody to open us up in prayer. And we just want to pray for the cup. Or pray, pray for the bread. Pray for the cup. We're not going to pray for anybody else or anything else except giving thanks for the bread and for the cup. And so let's pray and then, and then we'll pass it out. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. This time that we get to have, Lord God. As we close off this book, Lord, and We see the disobedience of a man and how it affected a nation. And yet, Lord, we we see the obedience of your son and how it has affected mankind. Lord, you came and you died for our sins so that we might have a relationship with you. Knowing and understanding that we would still sin, you still came. The word says, Lord God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated that kind of love towards us. And so, Lord, I pray that even tonight, Lord, wherever we're at tonight, Lord, that we would examine our hearts right now, even before we get get the bread and the cup, that we would ask for forgiveness and that you would draw us to a place of being worthy 
to partake of communion tonight, Lord. So just let us, Lord, allow us the privilege of entering into your presence with praise and thanksgiving to honor you and to praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.